0: You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Podcast. My name's Lucas Rickert, and welcome, one and all. We're discussing psychedelics today, specifically mescaline. Let me introduce you to author Mike J. Mike is a public intellectual. He's the author of over a dozen books. He writes regularly for the London Review of Books, the Wall Street Journal, and the Literary Review. In addition to this, he works as a curator and exhibit designer for the Wellcome Trust in London. His most recent book is Mescaline, a global history of the first psychedelic, published by Yale University Press. Mike, it's wonderful to have you here, and I'm thrilled to talk about your book today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Luke.
0: Okay, so let's start off with you. Can you just give us a little sense of your background and how you got onto the topic of Mescaline?
1: Yeah, uh, my background, I guess, I'm not an academic. Uh, I did a degree in philosophy at Cambridge University, after which I decided I was kind of done with reading books. And I spent the next uh, 10 years working in film and TV and journalism. And um, I've been pretty much a freelance writer ever since. Uh, I started writing about drugs quite early on, I guess 20 years ago in the sort of mid 90s, when nobody else was writing about it much. And it became a kind of a specialism. Um, at that time, people talked about drugs as if they had been invented by hippies in the 1960s. So, uh, <laughs> I kind of one of my sort of beats was to kind of try and show how you know our um, you know illicit drugs of today all have you know much longer histories than that you know, and often very diverse and interesting histories. So that's been um, you know a subject area that I've I've, I've written a lot about ever since
0: and mescaline and spe- uh more specifically what is it that's driven you towards uh this uh this drug
1: uh i've nibbled away at uh bits of mescaline's history in the past uh i um it's a it's a big subject uh to take on and a difficult one but there were a couple of things that really appealed to me uh one is that um I guess probably the story that most people know about mescaline is uh, that uh, Aldous Huxley took it in 1953, and he wrote his account of it in The Doors of Perception, after which he and the psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond, who'd given him the mescaline, coined the term psychedelic. So that's officially the beginning of the psychedelic era. And psychedelics, we think of the story starting there in the sort of 50s and becoming a mass cultural phenomenon in the 60s but what's interesting about uh, masculine is that um that's more or less the end of mescaline story. Mescaline kind of goes way back through different disciplines all the way through, you know, in the, the 20th century. And before that, it has a long uh, and uh, varied indigenous history. So it's a chance to write about psychedelics, what they are, what they do, how they're used in different cultures through history. Um, but outside this kind of, you know, contemporary sort of um, idea of what psychedelics are. So it's a way of, you know taking something that we think we know and uh you know presenting it in unfamiliar contexts and making us think about it differently
0: cool well let's pick up on that thread a little bit um you mentioned that it's uh been deeply ingrained in other cultures and so can you tell listeners a little bit about its its history uh beyond um western medical science
1: yeah um mescaline occurs uh in nature in um, cacti, in two uh, particular families of cacti, uh, very curious that it should be two very distantly related fa- families of cacti. There's the uh, um, San Pedro cactus, which is a tall, spiny, columnar, kind of classic cartoon cactus that grows all over the Andes, uh, which contains about 1% of masculine And then there's the peyote cactus, probably more familiar which grows in Mexico and a little bit of what's now Texas, which is a small, stubby little um, spineless cactus, uh, which has a slightly higher concentration of mescaline. So there are two traditions of uh, mescaline-containing cactus use, uh, both of which are um, we have evidence for going back um, three you know maybe four or five thousand years into prehistory uh the san pedro uh for example we see that um carved on the walls of three thousand year old uh, peruvian temple up in the high andes um wow. the, and the um but the uh, uh, but the, the first sort of western engagement with uh mescaline containing cacti is with uh peyote which the spanish accounted encountered during the conquest of Mexico in the 16th century so uh, that we have a much longer d- different kind of written history of
0: yeah indeed I remember reading some of Carlo Castaneda's work in in undergraduate. um that's mm-hmm. um I guess the story of psychedelics more generally I mean whether or not it's mescaline or not uh just to pick up on what you're talking about with other cultures um has been told unfortunately i suppose through the lens of uh white middle-class men and western uh western-based science so i guess can you expand or tell us a little bit more about how you know, other cultures have used mescaline uh, uh and then i suppose a little bit about the role of women as well in in the history of mescaline medicine
1: Sure. I mean, this is um, this is another thing that attracted me to the idea of writing a book about mescaline is that uh, mescaline kind of has two histories. You know, it was uh, exactly a hundred years ago in. Uh, 1919 it was first synthesized in the laboratory so for a hundred years it's existed in uh, modern western culture and scientific and other contexts um and then it also has this non-western uh, indigenous history that goes back thousands of years and um it's interesting to write these two histories in parallel because the source material for them is so different uh From the very beginning, which is uh, the 1890s, when you get the first Western investigators, scientists and doctors uh, taking uh, peyote and writing about it, you get this literature that is um, very medico-scientific, at that point exclusively male and uh which focuses very specifically on describing the effects of the uh you know the pre- presumed drug in this cactus you know before it's it, it's known exactly what it is and um this is a literature that we know quite well and it's still you know this is still the way that you know most people in our culture uh, write about drugs. If you go to something like the Erowid website, where people leave their reports, this is the kind of literature where people start. You know, eight twenty-two p.m. consumed. Uh, you know, four uh, buttons of peyote cactus. Nine fifteen p.m. Start to notice the first sort of uh, violet and green shimmerings around my. Uh, pat- you know, on my, my notepad, and uh, and and so on. It's a kind of it's a curious um, style because on the one hand. Um, It's very personal. On the other hand, it's kind of rather distanced and objective and scientific. Uh, So that's pretty much, uh, you know, we've got a very, very detailed uh, literature of uh, Western engagements with masculine and the vast majority of them have this style. So they have a central first person character in the middle narrating. And they're often very much focused on um, the sort of visual effects people get, you know, particularly from the very beginning with the masculine literature. People are trying to describe these kaleidoscopic patterns and bright colours that they're seeing on their, you know, on 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 their closed eyelids. Um, what's interesting when you and try and look back at uh, indigenous histories is that um, you know you have very different type of source material. Uh, people very very rarely give a first person account of what's going on because um, you know uh, this is um, it's usually some kind of communal or collective experience and there's quite a presumption against um, uh, sharing your sort of personal and private visions uh, in uh, cultures like sort of the uh, which all culture in Mexico when uh, anthropologists ask people, ask people, what do you see? What are your visions? People say, well, you know, why would I want to share that? That's, that was something private that was given to me. What would be my motive for trying to impose that on other people? Uh, And in fact, there's quite often a presumption against the visions being interesting. There's an idea that if you're focused on the visions, you're being distracted. You're kind of missing the point. If um, if there's a sort of collective ritual going on and all you're doing is sitting there with your eyes closed, you know, looking at these patterns on your eyelids, then, you know, you need to wake up and engage. So uh, it's fascinating to tell these two stories in parallel and to see the different, you know, the specific assumptions that underlie our Western psychedelic paradigm.
0: So did this cause any problems with you putting the book together and trying to make these two overlapping intersecting narratives work or, or did it come together nicely?
1: I really enjoyed the two different forms of engagement. So my writing about the indigenous traditions is much more, um, uh, you know, the the mescaline containing cacti uh, are much more embedded in the culture and in the stories of the people. So you're writing something that is more like ethnography. You're telling the story of a whole people and you're showing how, for example, the um, uh, peyote... Uh, ritual in the among among the plains indians you know you're seeing who were the you know there, there are characters there you know community leaders um people who are advocates for this tradition and who spread it um but by and large it's the story of the people and their situation and then when you're looking at uh um, western mescaline you're really looking at individual people's stories uh and the interest of that i think um I mean, it can often be when you're reading descriptions of people's drug experiences that you're just um, it's like reading long descriptions of people's dreams. It's kind of boring. Uh, (laughs) But if you have a sense of who the person is and why they're doing this and what what they're looking for and what it means to them, then I think it becomes quite involving. So it was very nice to be able to transition between uh, these collective cultural stories on the one hand and these individual personal stories on the other.
0: Yeah, one of the most fascinating elements of the book, uh, at least as as I read it, was uh, how you highlighted certain cultural references. Um, sometimes they were pop culture, sometimes not. And I thought that many of them sort of just jumped off the page of me. And um, so basically the book's far from a story about medical science and, and regulation exclusively. Other authors are, are doing that. But uh, I guess my question is, can you say uh, a little bit about some of your favorite anecdotes, the cultural references uh, or the cultural stories that, that really shone for you?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one strand in the book is um, Western science, scientific engagement with masculine. And there's a particular um, I think it gives us particularly interesting uh, angle on the history of regulation, particularly looking at the you know uh the plains Indian peyote religion and the Native American church as it became but beyond that there 's an awful lot that spreads beyond that because there's um there's a lot of um spiritual engagement of course uh, and some of this is very surprising you know very early on during the nineteen hundreds and nineteen tens I was um astonished to discover for example that uh uh the um reformed uh mormon church uh led by frederick smith who was the grandson of joseph smith the uh founder of the uh of, of the mormon church that um he was um a kind of i think like a lot of people at the beginning of the 20th century he was kind of progressive minded and um he felt that uh western culture was becoming mechanized and dull and he believed that we really needed some kind of ecstatic um, religious experience in our lives and um, the mormons of course being where they were reached out to uh, a lot of native american tribes uh, you know that was an important part of their missionary work and frederick smith attended peyote ceremonies and um you know thought that this was you know an experience that um connected him you know not just to uh, centuries of spiritual tradition across the world but uh, particularly to um you know his 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 vision of Christ you know the perfected man and um uh, so it was fascinating to discover that um you know uh, that that people people like that were interested in peyote and around the same time then you had uh, other people engaging with it um very differently. For example, Alastair Crowley, the famous um, uh, occultist and magician at that time was experimenting with it. And uh, I was also interested to see how it kind of gives us very interesting um, t- stories of scientific engagement. There's uh, persistently um, when people, whether they're psychologists or um neuroscientists or um psychiatrists um uh try and investigate it they find that it kind of spills over from their discipline uh so there are great examples of um uh, mind scientists deciding to collaborate with um artists or with uh, philosophers so you have uh, psychiatrists giving mescaline to people like um walter benjamin or jean-paul sartre Uh, There was a wonderful uh, experiment that took place in London in the 1930s where two psychiatrists who were investigating hallucinations uh, decided to give uh, mescaline to a bunch of surrealist artists because they thought, well, you know... um, you know, these people are going to be able to paint or draw their hallucinations. These are people who are used to, uh, um, you know, externalizing the context of the subconscious mind. So an awful lot of uh, what starts off as scientific engagement with masculine goes off in strange and unpredictable directions.
0: Oh, I love it. Uh, (laughs) uh, I have to ask too about maybe some of the the art and involved with the, the physical book itself um mm-hmm. the, the design of your book uh it's is very appealing can you can you tell us a little bit about uh that process
1: yeah that was I mean that was a delightful surprise for me I think it's a great design I mean I gave a, a, a brief for the cover uh I said su- I'd suggested it it should be psychedelic, but not kind of psychedelic in that kind of op art 1960s way that we conventionally think of it. This is something kind of darker in tone, you know, colours emerging out of darkness. You know, there's a great uh, uh, motif that runs through the investigation of masculine, which is about people closing their eyes in a darkened room and seeing these colours start to appear. So my uh, visual references for this were um, uh, kind of, uh, abstract animators of the 30s, people like uh, Oscar Fischinger, I don't know if you remember. Um, mm-hmm. Fantasia, the Disney movie, opens course, with this beautiful yeah. sequence, a sort of synesthesia of, uh, you know, where the, as the orchestra tunes up and these sort of images appear. So that was kind of what I had in mind. And um, I just gave that brief to uh, uh, my editor who um, then turned up something absolutely perfect. Um, I, I think um, it's, it's also... You want something that kind of, in a way, has a look of kind of tribal art or Mexican art, like Wichol art, but also has that um, feeling of uh, 20th century science to it as well. And I think it it bridges those two just beautifully.
0: I'll just say very quickly that I had a few uh, nightmares about Fantasia and uh, walking brooms when I was a kid. Yeah. But yeah, I just have to say to listeners too that the the cover just pops. It's it's very vibrant, and flipping through the book is is a visual experience as well. So um, so look, it's it's obvious that you're you're contributing. I think to important contemporary discussions right now as well in in medical science. I mean, I'm I'm in a school of pharmacy. And um, this is something that a lot of my colleagues and I are talking about: is the use of psychedelics in uh, as viable therapeutics uh, nowadays. And uh, so, who is it uh, that needs to read this book? I mean, who? I mean, obviously, you've written the book um, for many audiences, and I and, I, and um, it's very accessible and extremely inform- informative. But who, if you had to pick, needs to read the book the most?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was another appealing thing about mescaline as a subject is that mescaline is nowhere to be seen in the psychedelic renaissance you know it's it's the drug for which the term psychedelic was coined but everybody is working with ketamine or psilocybin um you know or um you know lsd or mdma uh so I don't have to engage with that directly. Um, I guess what I'm trying to do is to um, give a sense of the hinterland behind this and of the long history of people trying to um, co-opt mescaline for uh, medicine and particularly for psychotherapy. uh, And The um, you know, which is which which is, you know, it's a history that goes way back to the beginning of the 20th century. I think much earlier than people realize. Um, uh, And it's a history that's fascinating, but also problematic. I mean, in terms of pharmacy, I think, uh, you know, you can see from the very beginning how hard mescaline was to contain because most drugs have predictable effects, you know, even psychoactive drugs you know valium doesn't make kind of some people sort of um sleepy and other people overexcited you know it does what it does yep. but mescaline from the very beginning um there was uh, it had an enormous number of different effects on different subjects um it was a very intense experience uh, for people who were enjoying that experience it was intensely enjoyable for people who were not it was um terrifying and and, and, and nightmarish uh so i think um it, before we kind of um start to Treat psychedelics just like um, another kind of uh, item in the psychopharmacy. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at the wider story of its use, how tantalizing and fascinating it's been, but also how problematic and how many of its most effective uses um, have been outside the clinical paradigm.
0: What I've found with uh, talking with people uh, who are maybe uninitiated in the history of psychedelics generally, sort of lump them all together. And uh, I I suppose what you've done is really nuanced the story of of mescaline and and shown that it's it's not at all the same as LSD. Is that fair to say?
1: It's surprising how when you look at that time in the 1950s when LSD is coming in. Uh, and replacing mescaline and looking at the people who are comparing it. Um, Most people, you know, people like Aldous Huxley, who began with mescaline then moved on to LSD and kind of went, oh, yeah, this does pretty much the same thing. Mm. Uh, And people like, um, you know, Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD. I guess when those are the only two substances that do anything like this, you know, then their commonalities are, um, are, you know, much more apparent. Um, but of course the huge difference is in, is in dosage. Uh, mescaline is something that, you know, is active at doses of, um, you know, several hundred milligrams, uh, uh, LSD it's micrograms. So I think that made it more appealing at that point to uh, neuroscientists because it was obvious that this must be acting on some very specific if unknown trigger mechanism.
0: So can we just pivot a little bit away from the book to uh Mike Jay's advice for younger uh writers and, and scholars? Can I can I uh ask a question uh if I may about uh as the author of over a dozen books, uh extremely prolific, what kind of advice you'd give to to younger authors?
1: Yeah, I think um I have found um, the history of drugs to be a very valuable subject to explore. It's not the only thing I've written about, uh, but I've kind of, um, being a, being freelance, you know, um, people kind of, uh, commissions come back at me, you know, and something that's, a you know, drugs are a perennially sexy and popular subject. So, uh, the reason I've ended up writing about them a lot is because people, uh, you know, I've become the go-to guy for this kind of thing. And, um, what I find great about it is that um it's a, it's it's treated as a specialism as if I'm a specialist in this, but of course i'm not i'm I'm not an academic I'm really a generalist and um what I like about it and what I find so rewarding about it is it's a subject that um uh you know enables you to cherry pick a lot of interesting material from different territories so uh you know there's ath- ethnography and anthropology in here there's the history of science you know there's the history of art and literature there's neuroscience of course and um i think that's a good way you know particularly if you're starting out to find an original subject and an original voice is to yoke together a couple of disciplines that haven't been explored together Um, and I think we're now reaching the point where in terms of writing about, um, psychedelics and drugs, there's kind of like a little, um, you know, there's quite a culture around that, um, you know, but I think I I find that, um, that culture kind of, um, it's a little bit of an echo chamber and it's slightly insular because people treat, um, drugs or psychedelics as if they're a subject in their own right. So I would say, reach out from that and, you know, do a deep dive into one or another kind of specialism or aspect of history that you can attach this to and uh, bring new life to it and get uh, you know new facets of it to catch the light
0: so what direction are you heading next and I guess what I'm asking is like what kind of project are you turning to in the 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 weeks and months ahead
1: that's um, a very good question Uh, (laughs) I find um, as a uh, as as a writer at the level that i'm writing it takes uh it takes a while to tee up a new book you know the uh um uh i have a lot of um shorter commissions which are which are great you know essays and um, reviews um this this kind of writing is fascinating so uh um i've just you, you might see in the wall street journal in the next uh couple of weeks uh a piece i've written about a new book about the history of lithium which is fascinating i mean oh. that's another um uh that's another drug that kind of spills out of the boundaries of medicine. Uh, I did not know, for example, I mean, we all know that Coca-Cola used to have cocaine in it. But uh, I did not know, for example, that 7-Up used to have lithium in it, that it was a kind of uh, uh, you know, that there were these kind of um, calming sedative you know, tonics. And there's a, you know. Uh, so what I tend to find is that, um, you know, I get given these commissions there are always like little stories that i'm researching myself and developing and uh, i proceed like that for a while and then at some point you know they coalesce into a new subject but uh, i'm not in any hurry to kind of uh, rush into a new um project straight away it's a kind of nice point at the moment where i can uh, continue to spin out elements of aspects of this book and um, you know open up to new material
0: that's a great spot to be in and um Your most recent book, *Mescaline: A Global History of the First Psychedelic, was also a great read. Um, And thanks so much for uh, spending this time with me today.
1: Oh, it's a great pleasure, Luke. Thank you very much.
0: All right. Take care.
1: You too.